A very warm welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. I will tell you that at least in my limited experience outside outdoors today, it feels a little bit cooler. Yes, it says 66. 66. Okay. All right. Well, the last the last week it's been it's been kind of hectic. So I'm feeling I'm feeling a beautiful day, and please God, not only the physical weather should be great, but also the spiritual. The spiritual uh, energy should be fantastic. That is what we do here at Kabbalah and Coffee. It's all about getting ourselves spiritually supercharged for the week. I want to begin, um, as always, by thanking our dear and generous sponsor, Dr. Joy Maxi, who has sponsored Kabbalah and Coffee in loving memory of her dear mother, and Geraldine Brittain Maxi. May her memory be for an everlasting blessing. So today's topic is miracles. Miracles versus, in other words, miracles versus uh, nature. Or nature versus the supernatural. So by raise of hand or by yays, by shout outs, who is familiar, sorry, not who familiar, um, who, to, who um, when Betchilas had pandemic, as how we would say it in Hebrew. At the beginning of the pandemic, so I did a series called Miracles. Who was part of that series? Remember that series called Miracles? Anybody remember that? Okay. All right. I know if, I know if you, you joined me then for this. It was not Shailai. We studied a Hasidic discourse of the Rebbe on the nature of miracles, and uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty epic. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. So... Today, we're going to take a deep dive into miracles and talk about the difference between the difference between miracles and nature. So I think to get, to get started, I want to, ha- I want to see if we can get a working definition of what a miracle is. So can somebody define a miracle for me? It could be an example of a miracle, but I think even better would be just a definition of miracle. What is, what is a miracle? breaks the laws of nature. Perfect. I love it. Something, David, you were there in the Miracle series, right? Um, So something that breaks the laws of nature. I love that definition, and I think that's the one that we'll stick with today. It's a great definition. In other words, there are the laws of nature. Things, things, oh, yeah, good, right, Rabbi Tatz. So so, um, you think that's his definition? Yes, he has a great lecture on miracles. You know, hidden miracles, uh, 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 obvious miracles. It's, it's a great lecture. Okay, good. So we're going to get into a little bit of that today. Um, if you could always drop, if you, have a good, if you have a link, I don't want to give you work now, but if you have the link, feel free to drop it in the chat that everybody can kind of like copy it and, and listen to it later. Um, so when it comes to miracles, I think the, a great definition, as we've been discussing right now, is Something that breaks the laws of nature. I want to give a simple example, and it's going to be an easy example. It'll be a biblical example, and it's the example of the splitting of the sea. Okay, this is a really easy, simple example. It's also simple and easy because we all weren't there, but as recorded in the Torah, this is what happens. The sea, the Yamsuf, which, is, which literally means the Sea of Reeds, by the way, if you ever see it translated as the Red Sea, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Sea of Reeds. Someone left off an E. Suf means reeds in Hebrew. It's not red, 
Yam Sufasi reads. I know translated as Red Sea, but I'm just saying that's not necessarily what it what it means. Anyway, so the Jewish people got to the Sea of Reeds, the Yamsuf. The more you know, right? So they got to the Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds. And the Egyptians, this is seven days after the Exodus, the Egyptians pursuing the Jewish people. And they're pinned, the Jewish people are pinned, trapped against the sea. And panic ensues. And four groups break out. And some people want to just surrender and go back to Egypt. And some want to fight the Egyptians. And some want to just throw their lives away and jump into the sea and commit suicide, mass suicide. And others want to pray to God. And God says to Moses, tell the people, Vayiso, keep on moving forward. Don't give up. Don't fight. Don't pray. And don't give up. There's two ways of giving up. One is giving up and surrendering, and one is giving up and giving up. Don't do, all, don't do any of the above. Faiso, keep on moving forward. You have a date with me at Sinai, right? We have a date at Sinai, God says. Um, as we were discussing, Dina, Dina, I'm going to use that now. Um, as we've been discussing on Shavuot, I believe, right? They knew about Sinai. They, that was the, the, the intention already from the Exodus was, you know, the, the, the rendezvous at Sinai. Destiny. There was de- rendezvous with destiny, excellent, divine destiny. So they knew that was going to happen. And so God says, one second, we have a date. So what? Vaiso, keep on moving forward. Don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Keep on. Oh, thank you. Thank you, David. Um, keep on moving forward. That was the message. And they did. There was one guy, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav from the tribe of Judah. He goes in first. He walks in the water. And, the, and, of course, as he goes in deeper and deeper and deeper, the, you know, the, the water rises, 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 gets up to his nose. You know, once it covers the nose, unless you got a snorkel, you're done. And at that point, the sea splits. This is all, as the Midrash explains the story. And then the sea splits. And as the Torah describes it, The water was for them as a wall on the right on the yamin and on the small, on the right and on the left. So they walk through the water. They walk through dry, dry land, essentially. Not only did the sea split, but as we have in the Dayenu, that we recite at the Haggadah, Day Dayenu, right? We say that not only did God make the sea split, but He dried out the bottom. He dried out the seabed for us, so it was comfortable. Listen, I think God knew His customers. Imagine if the Jewish people walked through and it was muddy. Oh yeah, I just brought these shoes. Oh, come on. Unbelievable. Who's running this? Who's running this operation? Who's running this tour? You call this uh, an experience? I want a refund. So anyway, so it's dry land and the water was a wall on the right side and the left side. Can you imagine what the water looked like? Can you imagine? I think the closest we can imagine is like an aquarium where when you walk through, you know, if you have glass on either side and you walk, you know, they have these tunnel experiences at the, the aquarium, you, you know, here at Georgia Aquarium and others, you know, and you walk, it feels like you're walking through the water. All right, I mean, that's kind of what we like, but instead of the water flowing, maybe it did flow next to them. I don't know. Either way, the water stood like a wall and didn't collapse. That's a bona fide miracle. Why is it a miracle? Because it defies, and again, this is our working definition, because it completely abrogates, it completely defies, it completely um, uh, uh, unmoors the laws of nature. The laws of nature are such that water is a free-flowing Liquid. That's what water is. Water flows. That's the definition of a liquid. Right? There are different states. There's liquid, um, solid liquid gas. Am I getting those the three right? The big three right? The big three states of 
I think so. Plasma. Plasma. Eh, plasma. Who knows what plasma is? They make them, they put them in TVs. That's what TVs look like. Anyway, the point is like this, that, that a liquid is fluid. A gas is, you know, a gas and a solid is a solid. So, so what is this kind of water that's standing like a wall? You have a liquid that's becoming a solid. It's very bizarre. So this is a classic example. Again, I'm just using one biblical example, famous biblical example of what we would call a miracle. Now, this is what we would call not only a miracle, but as Dr. David pointed out, an obvious type of miracle. This is, an, this is a miracle. If you were there, if you were there at that moment, and there was a sea in front of you one moment, and the next moment, there's now a pathway in the water, a pathway in the sea, and the water standing up as a wall on both sides, you would say, number one, let me check my glasses. I know I got new glasses, but let, let me check these, uh, let me check these, these glasses. Huh? <laughs> I noticed that. You noticed, I made the announcement. Because I know whenever something, people are like, is that new? Am I crazy? Let me just say, no one's crazy. These are new. They're actually not new. <laughs> Doesn't matter. The point is like this. Um, somebody's witnessing that, somebody experiencing that event would say 100%, without a doubt, that is a miracle. It's a clear, open miracle. And what, what is the miracle? The miracle is that the nature, the physical nature of something of this physical universe was either suspended, overridden, whatever you want to call it, something about the nature of our universe was absolutely broken or modified. Yeah. But the people had to have faith to go in at that point because one could assume, they say, what if it just is a trick and it collapses? Yeah, correct, correct. As Dina points out, the people had to have tremendous trust in Hashem that they would walk through and it wouldn't collapse on them. By the way, the Egyptians also had trust or, I don't know, they were excited about following and didn't work out for them because it did collapse on them. So a, a miracle, by definition, or at least by our definition today, is something that breaks the rules of nature. Water flows. It does not stand up on its own. The fact that water, when water stands up on its own, like a wall on one side and the other side, that's a miracle. What's nature? Let's define nature. Nature is something that operates according to the rules of nature. If a miracle is that which breaks the rules of nature, so the what's nature? The rules. In other words, when you go out to the sea or to the ocean or to a river, to a lake or to a stream or a babbling brook and the water is flowing and doing its thing, that's nature. There's no miracle, that's nature. That's what it's supposed to do. So nature is the universe doing what it's supposed to do. When I say supposed to, what it typically does and a miracle is something that absolutely defies nature, breaks nature, right? shatters nature. Now within, okay, so, so these are some basic and elementary definitions of the, two, of the two terms. Now, within the realm of miracles, there are different forms of miracles. There are miracles that absolutely shatter the boundaries or the rules of nature, and when you see it, you're like, whoa, how did that happen? It makes no sense. And then there are miracles that you know are a miracle that still work within, within, the, um, with, within the rules of nature. So what would be a good example of that? The story of Purim. The story of Purim. Right? Purim is one of the, one of the rabbinic 
Jewish holidays. When I say rabbinic, it's what I mean is it's not in the Torah, it's not in the five books of Moses. The story of Purim didn't happen then. It happened, I don't know, a thousand years later or so. So give or take. Story of Purim is uh, the Jewish, the, the, the land of Israel was then ruled by the Persian Empire. By the way, when you look at a map of the Middle East over the years, you see all of the empires and kingdoms that have been in control of that area. It kind of, uh, you know, it kind of moved in and out of different hands. So it's, of course, famously the Roman Empire ruled it for many, many, many years, many centuries. Um, but for a while, it was ruled by the Persian Empire. And it was at the time of the Persian Empire, this was between the first temple and the second temple. There was about a 70-year gap. So somewhere in between then, between those two time periods and those 70 years, is when the Persian Empire ruled the, the land of Israel. And the king's name was Ahasuerus. And his chief advisor was a man named Haman. Boo, right? We, we know that as Haman. Boo, right? Twirl, right? Get your, uh, your necklace grog ready. So... Uh, Haman says to the king, I want to destroy the people. There is one nation that is scattered. Right? It's almost like painting them so deviously. There's one nation. They're infiltrating. They're infiltrating your kingdom. Of course, referring to the Jewish people. And, um, and he says, we have to get rid of them. And I'll give you money to get rid of them. And the king says, keep your money. Do whatever you want. And loyalenu, may it never happen. He, he uh, signs a decree to, God forbid, annihilate every Jewish person uh, on planet Earth, that, I mean, because they were all living in the same kingdom, uh, men, women, and children, on one day. Never before, never after was there such a threat of total and complete and utter annihilation. Because, again, there weren't Jews living in other parts of the world that would, be, that, that would escape this potential devastation. It was one day, men, women, and children, everyone was mobilized against the Jewish people. And, of course, we know the end of the story is we were saved. In fact, that's why we have a holiday, right? The holiday is called Purim. And on Purim, like many Jewish holidays, we celebrate the fact that they wanted to kill us. We won. Let's eat, Let's eat right? And we eat and we party and it's a festival and we drink and we eat and we drink some more. Adelayada, the Talmud says, until you don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Back to the plot. So how does the story turn around? You have such a terrible decree, and it looks like over. It looks like there's no way out of this. Well, it turns out there's a, uh, there's, a, um, there's a secret play that the Jewish people have. And what is that? turns out the king's wife, Esther, is Jewish. I know you know this story, but I just want to set this up for a second. The queen, the queen of Persia is a Jewish woman, Esther. The king has no idea. And ultimately, the queen tells the king, FYI, I'm Jewish. She doesn't even say that. She says there's a guy who wants that. She invites her husband and Haman to a dinner party, just the three of them. Which, by the way, gets, gets uh, Ahasuerus very jealous right off the bat, just so you know. She was pl- there's a psychology. If you read the story and the commentaries, it's incredible. Her, her, her mind, the games that she was what she was doing to her husband. She was getting him all anxious. She invited them to another party beforehand, just the three of them. She's getting her husband all like all on edge about this guy. Why is this other guy in on our dinners? What's going on over here? Anyway, at that second meeting, she drops the bomb and she says, there's, there's one person who wants to kill me and my people. The husband says, who is it? 
And she says, Haman HaRasha said this guy right here, this wicked Haman, who was literally there, and his face, and that was it, and he was done. And that's how the story, and that's how the story goes. Now, you could read the story two ways. You could read the story like, I mean, obviously, the advisor, no one knows that the queen is Jewish. The advisor has a decree to kill the Jews. Turns out the queen is Jewish. Decree is annulled. Happily ever after. Or you could say, how did she become queen? She became queen because of a crazy story that the initial queen was killed at, at another party. Again, wild story. That's how the Megillah begins. She's killed and then there's a search. And out of all the women, all the fair maidens of the land, who's chosen to be the queen? This Jewish woman. And then years later, this is what turns out. And, all, and, and it, it, there's a whole series of events, as, this, as the book of Esther relates, that leads to this moment, this dramatic moment, where Esther points out, outs Haman as the, as the bad guy, and off with his head. That's like, so you could read it as like, yeah, it's not a miracle here. Or you could read it as the ultimate miracle because of all the other, all the things that had to happen in order for this to be set up in the way that it, that it transpired. And then tell yourself the following. It's a miracle that is working within the rules of nature. You with me on this? It's like the puppet master pulling all the strings. So there's two ways the puppet master could work. Either the puppet master says, that's it. It's like, you know, when kids play chess and they're losing. Not my kids, but some kids sometimes. <laughs> right? And they're like, ah, they throw the board, they toss the board, they flip the board. Again, I kids don't do this. I'm just saying, theoretically, right? Toss the board. That's it. We're going to just, we're going to do it my way, not this way. Break the rules. That's what a miracle is. God tosses the board and says, the water's going to stand up now. Forget the rules. I don't care about the rules. It's going to stand up. Sometimes God says, you know what? Let's work within the rules. So we have to say to the Jewish people, all right, we're not going to make something crazy happen. All right, let's play the long game. Let's assassinate the queen and then orchestrate that this Jewish girl out of nowhere should be chosen as the queen, even though by many accounts she wasn't the most beautiful, whatever it is, and then have this happen, that happen. Mordecai saves the king's life, and that's recorded in the book, and he's never rewarded for it, and the king can't sleep one night. Crazy one story after the next, after the next, after the next, to lead to the same result, which is salvation of the Jewish people. Are you with me? It could happen two ways. Either the water can stand up, or a whole mice, a whole story that leads to the same result. One breaks nature, one works within nature. But either way, we celebrate them both as a holiday. We have Passover, ten plagues, splitting the sea, and we have Purim, which is a miracle that works within, within the glove of nature. It's kind of, I use the word glove significantly, and I've used this analogy by other, at other classes before. You put on a glove, right? You put on a glove, you move your fingers. What's moving? The glove or the hand? I know what you're going to say, both. But what's really moving? The hand is really moving. The glove... The glove I, doesn't fit, you must have quit. Right. <laughs> I was actually thinking that. It doesn't go on. Oh, no, it doesn't go on. I, that whole, whatever. Anyway... Back to the story. So the point is, the hand, obviously, is what's moving the glove, not the other way around. Right? It's the hand that, that, that moves the glove. Nature, a miracle that is enclosed in nature is kind of like God putting on the glove of nature and moving it around, moving it around, bending it according to, not breaking, not breaking, but bending it according to his will to get the desired outcome. So you have these, you know, incredible moments, these incredible twists and turns and like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. 
nothing could be outright called a miracle. It's the glove is still on. It's not like God takes off the glove. Taking off the glove is a miracle. Sorry, is an obvious miracle that shatters the boundaries of nature. But when God wears the glove and still moves things around, that's what we call a miracle working within the laws of nature. But then there's a third category, which is not a miracle. It's just nature. It's like, I'm looking outside. There are trees, there's grass. You take a seed, you put it into the ground, and it grows. Great. Is that a miracle? It's nature. It's nature, right? The way gravity works, the water flowing, you know, in a stream or sitting there in a lake, all of that is nature. The sun rising this morning, the sun setting tonight, all that is nature. All that is nature. Where does that come from? Judaism teaches, Kabbalah emphasizes and, and explains this, that nature is the same God as the miracle. In other words, just like we would say, let's, let's, let's compare and contrast the obvious miracle. I know we have two types of miracles. But let's compare and contrast the obvious miracle with nature. The obvious miracle, a person, if you were to be there at the time of the splitting of the sea, you would say, wow, all right, this is crazy. God is real. Like that's like water does not stand up like a wall. That's, that's Meshuggah. That's crazy. That's got to be God. Compare that to going to Lake Lanier or Lake Alatuna or pick your favorite lake and you go out to the, to the lake and you see the water just doing its thing normally. Do you say, that's God? Oh my gosh, that's God? Or you say, that's a lake, right? You probably say that's a lake. So what's the difference between a miracle and nature? What's the difference? So here's one way to think about it. And this is brought in the, the works of Jewish philosophy as well as Kabbalah. The difference between nature and a miracle is one thing, and that is frequency. The difference is one thing. How often does it happen? If every day the sea split, every morning the sea split for one hour, and once in humanity the sun set, the sunset would be a miracle. You with me on this? The reason why we take for granted the sunrise, sunset, that things grow when you plant them, the reason why they don't, they don't shock and awe in a good way is because they happen all the time. And because they happen all the time, so the luster is lost. When I say the luster is lost, what I mean is it doesn't wow us anymore. It doesn't impress us because it's normal. We take it for granted. We call that nature. Nature is the same. In other words, what I'm, what I'm doing now is challenging the whole premise of a nature announcing God. Sorry, of a miracle. Try this again. What I'm doing right now is challenging the notion that a miracle announces God by essentially positing that nature also announces God. It's just we've heard it so many times, the sound is we're deaf to that music. We don't hear it anymore because it's the soundtrack that constantly plays. And the way our senses work is we get excited about the things that happen that are new. If it happens once, wow, now you got my attention. If it's background noise, if it's, if it's consistently happening, it becomes background noise to my ears and I don't pay attention to it. So nature itself, and again, I'm just looking outside, All everything here outside 
trees that are growing and the wind that's blowing and sun that's shining and clouds that are also floating by. All of that is God. All of that is God. Why doesn't it like evoke, oh my gosh, that's God, that's amazing. Look, Because it, it's normal in our world. It's normal. It's the things that are unusual that catch our attention and, and shake us up a little and say, look, there's someone behind it. So what is nature? What is mother nature? You ready? God. <laughs> nature is God. It's just God with a relative frequency that, it, in other words, it's so frequent that we become normalized. It, it's, it becomes normalized. It, it beca- it, it's normalized. We become attuned to it. And it, does, it no longer thrills us. It's interesting. I was reading an article, I want to say two weeks ago. The article was about um, the thrill of stuff and why we're unhappy despite the tremendous, relatively speaking, the tremendous blessings that we all have. And it's something that I've spoken about in many classes prior. It was interesting to see this in a in a work on, you know, uh, in a work that's coming from like a philosophical or psychological place. And essentially it posits, this article posited that, um, you know, when a person, when a person uh, gets something new, they're very excited about it. When you get something new, you get very excited about it. But then the excitement wears off. Why? Because we become used to it. You become used to it, it become, you take it for granted. And it almost becomes now, not almost, it becomes an expectation. It's like, of course I have it, and I should have it, and I should always have it. And if you take it away from me, now I'm upset. So the only thing that can happen with this thing now is it can only make me upset. It won't make me happy anymore. Are you with me? When I didn't have it, when I didn't know it existed, when I didn't know it was even possible, this thing could spark joy. But now that I have it, and now that I'm used to it, the only thing this could do potentially is spark anger and outrage. Because if I have it, obviously... If I don't, how dare you? You with me? What, so, what, so what happens is we actually set ourselves up to be unhappy. The more amazing things we get, the unhappier we might become. That's just the way human psychology and human behavior works. Um, it's like a comedian who shall remain nameless because he's, you know, he did some not good things. Um, I know there's been a few of them. Not that one, the other one, whatever. Anyway, a comedian who once said that he was on a flight and they, like early on, when they were starting to roll out Wi-Fi and they announced on the flight, we're trying this out, Wi-Fi on airplanes. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. They're like, yeah, you can log on. Here's how you log on, blah, blah, blah. About 10 minutes later, they're like, oh, sorry, it's not working. Wi-Fi is down. Guy next to him is like, oh, this is ridiculous. And he's like, one second, this is ridiculous? You're upset? Like 15 minutes ago, you didn't know this, this was possible. And now that you had it for 10 minutes and now that it's taken away, now you're upset. That's the way human psychology works, right? When you don't have something and you don't know it's possible and then, it, and then you find out it's possible and or you get it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm so happy, I'm so excited, and I'm so grateful. But then just sit with that for a little bit, right? And, and, and keep that experience and then take it away from someone and, uh, and now it's gonna be, you know, how dare you? Who are you to take that away from me? The only thing that could spark is, again, is outrage and really not much joy. And so what a miracle is, sorry, what nature is, is God flexing consistently. A miracle is God flexing once. 
You're like, whoa, that's God. But when God flexes every single day with the sun, this ball of fire illuminating our, uh, you know, our world and then setting and temperatures working, I mean, just the, the exquisite symphony of existence, all of that working in, in such a beautiful way, when that happens on a consistent basis, we say, eh, it's normal. Give me something that, you know, excite me. This doesn't excite me anymore. Give me something, give me something exciting. So the difference, again, the difference between a miracle and nature is that a miracle happens once and nature happens consistently. It's just a matter of frequency. Does God flex once or every single day? So according to Kabbalah, the two systems of operation, two operating systems, the natural operating system, the miraculous operating system, they're coming from the same source, but they're manifesting in different degrees of frequency. So the core thing here is, and this is like a meditation that you can, you know, you can, this, this week, you can think about as you walk outside, as you go about your day-to-day life, as you wake up in the morning, as you go to sleep at night, as you have normal daily activities and experiences, you can think about the fact that this too is godly. This too is divine. This too is coming from the source. The fact that I am desensitized to it, that's on me, that's not on God. That's on me, that's because I have chosen to tune it out as white noise because it's so frequent, it's so common, I'm so used to it, I take it for granted, but it's no less of a miracle. Nonetheless, Kabbalah explains that this is the way God operates typically. God doesn't typically break the rules. God typically creates, not creates, but but works through the rules that he has created. In other words, if God has a choice, typically, if God has a choice, and I'm not telling God what to do, this is just what the books say. If God has a choice, of doing something crazy that breaks, that shatters nature versus working within the laws of nature, at this point, God chooses the, the, the latter, not the former. God chooses to work within the laws of nature and not break nature, not shatter nature. In biblical times, maybe it was a little bit different, but today, uh, God works through the boundaries of nature. The question is why? And to this, we go back to what we've been, what we've been exploring the last few months. And that is the process by which energy, spirituality, flows from the source to our reality, to our world. How does it go from top to bottom? How does it go from heaven, if you will, to earth? Not even heaven. How do you go from the spiritual realms to our physical realm? And as we've been exploring, this gets into the question about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when the blessings are initially um, generated for us or, or allocated for us versus when we actually... When, when they're delivered, right? Supp- what's, the big, what's the big buzzword today? Supply chain, right? Supply chain, logistics, right? Supply chain issues, right? So how do we go from the factory to the consumer? How do we go from the source and have, right, the spiritual source to us, to our pockets, right? Supply chain. It's got to go through a bunch of different steps. It's got to go through a bunch of different steps. In, in brief, I want to share with you four different steps corresponding to the four worlds that Kabbalah speaks of extensively. And again, if you've studied Kabbalah before, you're very familiar with these terms. I'm just going to state them once again uh, as, we, as we jump into it. There are four spiritual worlds. Atzilut, Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. And by the way, if you're wondering how we got from miracles and nature to the four worlds, 
This is why nature is so important, because of the four worlds, as you'll see in a moment. Atzilut, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya. These, in, in English, these are translated typically as the world of emanation, it's the highest, world of creation, it's the second, world of formation is the third, and the world of action, that's the lowest, that's us. Emanation, creation, formation, action, Atzilut, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya. What does that mean in English? So here's one way of understanding it, based on what we described last week about um, product design. Spoke about the iPhone and other such type of designs. So imagine, imagine you work for a product. Imagine you're working on launching a brand new project product. And I'm actually going to give you a genre, a category. You're being tasked by me right now. You're being tasked to create the world's very first flying car. And I know what you're thinking. First flying car? I've seen them before. The Jetsons. What do you mean? The Jetsons. They were flying cars around. Old. Meet George Jetson. Right? What do you mean? It's old. Here's the deal. I don't know anybody using a flying car. I know we have helicopters. People are working on these types of things. But let's say I task you with creating an everyday, affordable, right, normalized flying car. We'll worry about the airspace and the FAA. We'll worry about that. That's another department working on regulations. But you're working on the actual product. Are you with me on this? And your goal is within, five, within 10 years to create a $30,000 Flying car that everybody can purchase. You with me on this? This is exciting, right? Great. What's the first thing you're going to do? I don't know what the first thing you're going to do is. I feel like it's too, too much of an open-ended question. There have been multiple steps and st- stages of this journey. So you have, first of all, you have an idea. So at least you, ha- you have a category. You're not thinking you know, um, openly like, what should I create? What does the world need? At least you're, you're working within a certain framework, flying car. You with me on this? First thing you might do is get a bunch of designers, a bunch of uh, engineers, designers in, together in a room and start sketching out different, proto, uh, different sketches of what this could look like. And you would think, you know, as creatively as possible, it doesn't have to look like the Jetsons round the thing, although if it did, extra points for that because that was pretty cool. Could look like anything, could look like a car, could look not like a car, look like UFO, whatever. Are UFOs real or not? Depends who you ask, right? So whatever, but you, it could look like anything. The floor is yours, and the floor is lava. It could be whatever you want, whatever you want. Create whatever prototype you want. Not prototype, create whatever sketch you want. So stage one is getting the sketch, getting that drafted, right, the way, and then, and then, and then getting that to where it needs to be. The next general stage would be creating a prototype. So you have a sketch. You have something on paper, on a computer, whatever it is. So now let's, let's build it. Let's see what it actually looks like and feels like. Maybe you'd create a model first, a smaller model, whatever. But at some point, you'd create a prototype, right? I don't know. Flying car is probably a little too ambitious for this, but it's, it's fun. It's, for me, it's fun. Okay, so then now you have a prototype, and now you test it. And look at this. It works. It flies. It moves. But there's, there are things that need to be tweaked. So now you start tweaking. Now you start tweaking your, your prototype, and you create multiple prototypes, and many generations of prototypes. 
until, until, until finally you have your final product, your $30,000 mass-produced, mass-owned, or mass-purchased. The everyday homeowner, Joe and Jane homeowner, can purchase your flying car. Mazel tov, you've made it, and now you're fabulously wealthy beyond imagination. Yes, you like my story? Four worlds. There's the world of the sketch, Atzilut. That's the world of emanation. You have the flying car, but it's on paper. It's, on, it's not a flying car. You have something on paper or on a computer. You have a digital. You can show me a 3D walk around of this flying car, but there's no flying car. You don't have any. There's no actual, there's no actual thing called a, it's, it's a computer image. You with me on this? That's the world of emanation. We call, the world of, we call Atzilut, the world of emanation, a spiritual world. You know what that means? It's not tangible. There's nothing there yet. But it is there, but it's not there. But it is, but it's not, but it is, but it's not. It's like the sketch in your computer. It's there, but it's not actually there. It's not actually here. You with me on this? Then you have a prototype. Bria, creation. Now you have something. Prototype. But it's still, still, not, still not finalized. Yitzira, formation. That's where... You start tweaking your prototype. That's where you start iterating. That's where you start, you know, moving things around. What, what if we did this? What if we did that? Now you're working in real time. You're working on taking your initial physical prototype and improving it, making it better. Until you finally iterate, iterate, iterate until I see it, until it's done. That's this world where it's concrete and it's finished. And now it's being produced. This is the way the energy flows. Again, I'm giving a somewhat crude example or a crude analogy. It's an analogy of our physical world and our processes of creation to try to you know, understand how creation unfolds above in our universe. So it's necessarily going to be imperfect uh, because it's my analogy and it's, uh, it's taking things that, that, that's from, from our experience, but I think it's beneficial. I think it, is, um, it can be um, illuminating to think about the four worlds and the four steps of creation in this context. We have the initial sketch, we have then the prototype, then we have you know, the, the refining, that's a good word, refining the prototype, and then finalizing. If you look at the four letters of God's name, of the four-letter name of God, Kabbalah says these four letters of God's name correspond to the four worlds. And if you look at the letters, the shape of the letters, it speaks to exactly these four steps. The first letter of God's name, the four-letter name is Yud. Yud is known, obviously. If you see the shape of the Yud, it's the smallest letter. Yud is tiny letter. It's, like, it's almost like a dot. It's like a tiny letter. It means that you have this grand idea, but it's still, still a dot. It's still just a sketch, just a, uh, an image on your computer. It's not... It's not built out, it's not prototype, it's just, just an idea that's somewhat sketched out, but it's still, a, it's still like relatively you know, a kernel of an idea. Then you have the first prototype, that's the hey. Right? The four letters of God's name are yud, and then hey, and then vav, and then hey. Hey is a broad and wide letter. Hey is, right, it's the full length, it's like a box. If you look at a hey, it's got the width on top, it's got the height, it's got the length, it's got, it's got a... It's got the full, the full shape of a full letter. So the hay is really small. The, sorry, the yud is really small. The hay is, 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 is popped out. You go from sketch to prototype. Now you have something. Great. That's, that's creation. 
give something. But then you have to iterate. You have to iterate. You have to refine it. That's the vav. How do you t- how do you draw the vav? You take your pen, you put it on the paper, and you move down. Vav is a straight line down. You take it and you move down. That means you're refining it. You're moving it down, 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 down. You're refining it, making it better, better, better. It's the same point. You're just moving it down. Are you with me on this? You're not m- moving it around as much as you're moving it down, which means you're iterating it. You're refining it to make it better, 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 better until you reach again the final hay, and that is the production. That is where things get finalized and everything takes its final full shape. This is the way God created our universe. In other words, everything that you, see, you and I see here, again, I look outside, everything that we see here in this world is the end result, the final hay, if you will, of this incredibly grand process that began with the spiritual world of Atzilut, the world of emanation, as a spiritual sketch, as it were. What begins there on, in spiritual terms is manifest here in very real, tangible, physical, beautiful terms. It's a refining of this world. It's an improving of this world. See, even within this world, there's, there are iterations. In other words, we can improve the world and make the world better, etc. But the point here is that everything that's here, it's the, it's, the revert, it's the law of spiritual gravity. If it's here, it had to come from above. Everything here came from above. And as the spiritual energy descends lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until it reaches our physical plane of existence, but as that light, as that energy descends and circles down, 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 and downward, every step of the way, it becomes more tangible. Just like in our flying car example, every step of the way, the project becomes more and more real, more and more tangible, right? Until finally, you're actually assembling the door handles and you're putting in the button and working ignition. Like everything is finally taking shape and it becomes more and more concrete. The same thing is true with the spiritual energy. As it flows downward, it becomes more and more concrete. And the way that's described in Kabbalah is that as it becomes more and more concrete, what's really happening is that the energy, the spiritual energy, divine energy, is becoming more and more enclosed in what we would call the garments of nature. So as, and now we, we bring together the two points of, so far of today's class, as the energy, as the spiritual light, spiritual energy, or what begins as an ethereal divine a dream, as it becomes more and more tangible, more and more real, more and more concretized, what happens is the light becomes less obvious and the garment, the physical, natural uh, garment becomes more apparent. And so when it hits our world or when our world becomes manifest, so what we see is the stuff. We see the nature. We see the flying car. We don't see the designer. We don't see the prototype. We don't see the initial flash of genius of energy. We see the final tangible version. The more tangible it is, the less you see the ethereality of the way it began. Are you with me on that? When it's still a dream, when it's still a, when it's still a sketch, you see the sketch. When it's tangible, you see the tangibility of it. You see the frame. You don't see the inside. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't meditate on the on, on nature and discover the author of nature, but when you see the final result, typically what you're seeing is the body, you see the outside, and you don't see as much the inside. That's the danger in concretizing something. The more and more, the more, and more you concretize something, the harder it is to reverse engineer that and, and, and discover the ethereality of it, right? 
It's, it's like you see the tangible. It's like when I use it, when I give an analogy, like we spoke about a few weeks ago, the, anal- the analogy of an analogy. When you speak, when you use an analogy, the risk is that the student hears it and gets stuck with the example. It's like, what was today's class about? Flying cars. Nope, it's not about flying cars. But that's how our minds work. We, we get something tangible and we stick with the tangibility. But that itself should remind us don't get stuck in the tangible. The flying car was only an illustration of the four worlds of God's, four, the four letters of God's name. It's only an illustration of the process by which ethereal, ethereality, ethereal energy becomes more and more tangible and then manifests in a physical environment. You know, it's like any vision. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's like, uh, what's his name? The creator of, we're talking about uh, crypto, right? It's like, who was, um, Satoshi, it's like his original white, pa- white paper on, uh, on blockchain, right? On, yeah? It's a, and then how that then ends up with, uh, you know, a Bored Apes Yacht Club. I mean, you, have, you go from one to the other. And one is a, a realization of maybe an initial uh, concept. So going from here to there is a process. It doesn't happen boom, boom. It's a process. Now, can you trace it back? You can trace it back. But when you have this, when you're looking at an NFT, when you're looking at something re- in real life, you, know, you might not see the initial vision. And by the way, just, just to bring this into a real life example, you, know, you might work for a company and you might be doing X. In a company, you might, be do, you might be pushing a button all day, pushing a button. And you might not see how that pushing that button ties into the vision of the company. You with me on that? Sometimes you do a job and you don't realize like, like, why am I doing this? Like, what's the, what's the grander purpose? What's, because when you're, when you're operating down here, sometimes it's hard to see what's going on up there. We operate in this world, in, this, in our world, we operate down here. It's hard to see the spiritual energy that's driving all this. It's hard, we live our day-to-day lives. We get up, we get dressed, we go to work. Uh, all, all, the day-in, day-out grind. And sometimes it's hard to see the spiritual purpose for why we're here. This is what Kabbalah tries to expose that this is not just here, there's a spiritual energy inside of this. But the way God designed the world is that the, that, is that the light and the energy should flow downward, 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 with each step along the way becoming more and more garbed in natural garments, more and more garbed in physical garments, to the point that when it hits the end, the final result, which is our world, it's very hard to see God. It's, you can meditate and discover God, but it's very hard to see God when you look outside. You see nature. Once in a while, you have a miracle and something that wakes you up and says, where God says, by the way, I'm here. But that's not where God is exclusively. God is always around. God is in nature, not only in the supernatural. The, the, the miracle is the wake-up call. And what's the point of the wake-up call? To realize that God is here always. Are you with me on this? That every sunrise and sunset is the same force of God as the splitting of the sea. But why is it that there is this category of, of, of existence called miracle and category of existence called nature? It's because essentially God wanted this world, our world, to operate by the laws of nature because that's what gives it its physical contours. If God was consistently breaking the laws of nature, we wouldn't have a world. Are you with me in this? We wouldn't have a world. It would just be a, a, a God's playground. It wouldn't be a world that takes on tangible form. You can. That's really the whole point of today's class. Uh, the question that Alice is asking is, why can't you use God and nature interchangeably? The answer is exactly. Yes. In other words, what is nature? It's God. 
The only reason why we might use the word nature is to differentiate between the two ways in which God shows up. Either God shows up in a in hidden form and not really hidden form, just in a way that our minds that God also created would not see him because it's, ironically, because it's so obvious. It's, right, it, it, it's, so much, it's so much in front of us right, that we don't see it. Versus showing up in a in like showing up in like some crazy way, we're like, oh, hey God, how's it going? I didn't see you there the whole time, right? It's like you with me on this? Miracle is God acting out to get attention, but only in a good way, not in a negative way, not in a not in a you know toddler way, but acting out to get our, to remind us that He's around, but He's always there. It's nature, yeah, nature slash God acting out. What exactly. About, uh, humans harnessing the power of nature to do God's work. Yeah, that's why part of part of the purpose of creation is that God gives us the the the, the, the intellectual prowess, the intellectual ability to harness the tools of nature to then improve the world, also to potentially destroy the world, but hopefully to improve the world because we are meant to be co-creators. In other words, we are creating the image of God, and part of what that means is to also be co-creators. And Matt and I love talking about gaming, and like the holy grail of gaming is where you allow the gamer to be part of the creation, right? That's the holy grail. It's give so the, gamer the, the gamer becomes God. So we're God. Yeah, we have to be careful with these words, right? That we're God. I mean, like you can't isolate the clip, right? We have to understand it in context. Right, okay, good. I'm just saying, but you, like, we have to, with, within, within an understanding, within a framework. God is within us. God is within us, and God is operating, and the tools that we have, we're all floating. Now, to understand this even on, on, a, on a, I think to hopefully crystallize this idea, I want to I look at the Hebrew word for nature. The Hebrew word for nature is teva. Teva. Now, you might be familiar with the word teva, because teva is also the name of a company of footwear. Now, there's, see, I was under a misimpression, even even last night. Up until last night, up to and including parts of last night, I was under what I have recently discovered is actually an erroneous impression. There's an American company called Teva. They make sandals and everything. And I thought, because this is what I believe to be true, that they were actually an Israeli company. It turns out there's two companies. There's an Israeli company, Teva, and an American company, Teva. And I believe, at least according to my uh, semi-intense research on Wikipedia last night and other websites, I believe that they're actually two different companies. Teva is also a pharmaceutical company, correct? Yes, they are. One is a pharmaceutical company and the other is a footwear company. And the footwear company is in America and the pharmaceutical company is based out of Israel. So there's actually three companies then. So there's Teva, the pharmaceutical company in Israel. There's Teva, the footwear company based in America. And then there's Teva Naot, you can Google Teva, T-E-V-A, Naot, N-A-O-T, and that is a footwear company that is founded and based in Israel. Teva Naot is an Israeli footwear company, which I thought was the same as Teva America. It's not. Apparently, it's not. But the word Teva still means the same thing. Teva Naot have the greatest shoes. Oh, so I thought, see, I thought Teva Naot, thank you, Toba. I thought Teva, I thought teva Naot was the same as Teva. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on Teva's website last night, because I, I wrote an email last night called um, um, The Miracle of Teva. 
So I just wanted to confirm what I thought I knew about Teva, and I Google the Teva origin story, and it's like in 1984, some dude was on the uh, was by the Grand Canyon, and he put Velcro straps on his sandals, and I'm like, what? Where's Israel in this story? Turns out I was wrong. There's Teva Naot that's branded in America as Naot, and then there's Teva. But even Teva America, I would like to speak with the CEO and the founder of Teva to find out why he chose the name Teva, because I know what I know what Teva means. Teva means nature, which is perfect for an outdoorsy sandal. Hello. It's Teva literally means nature. When you're out in nature, when you're out in the wilderness, when you're out, I don't know, in the Grand Canyon and your sandals are floating away, when, you, when that's happening, welcome to Teva. That's nature. That's nature. Teva is nature. What's crazy, and we're about to get into the Hebrew etymology, the Hebrew, letter, the Hebrew words and, and their meaning. Teva is also related to the Hebrew word tubu. Tubu. And it relates to everything we've been speaking about today. Tubu biyamsuf, it says about the Egyptians. Tubu biyamsuf, they blank tub, tubu, which is tet, vet, ayin, like teva, and then u. Tubu means they, tevar. What does it mean, they tevar? But I, I, I want you to fill in, I'm going to give you um, a blank and you fill in the blank. The Egyptians blanked in the Red Sea. What did they do in the Red Sea? In the Sea of Reeds. What did they do? They drowned. They drowned. They drowned. They sank. Tubu biyamsof means they, they drowned. They sank. It's the same letters as Teva, as nature. So Kabbalah teaches something absolutely phenomenal. Listen to this. Nature is God sunk. What does that mean? What, what, nature is God sunk or drowning? What does that mean? God's drowning. So here's the way Kabbalah explains it. And it's going to be in our text today. So I'm just giving you a highlight of preview of what's, what, what we're going to read inside. It's an unbelievable concept. Let's say you have a gold coin. You have a gold coin. Okay? And you're in the ocean and you drop it and it goes, to the, and it goes inside the ocean. Okay? And I'm like, oh no, my gold coin. You dropped it accidentally. Oh no, my gold coin. It's gone. It's lost. I ask you a simple question. You're looking at the ocean and all you see is water and you don't see the gold coin. Is it lost? Is it lost? For you. For you, it's lost. Does the gold coin exist? 100%. 100%. Without a question, the gold coin exists. It's there. You can't see it. You know what nature is? God is here. You just can't see it. That's the connection between Teva and, and, and Tubu. You with me? Teva and, and, and Tubu. Why is nature drowned? Because what is drowning or sinking? Maybe sinking is a better. Drowning has a negative connotation. What, what's sinking? When, you, when something sunk, I mean, I just think of like uh, uh, treasure chests and pirates and whatever, right? No, no. So the treasure, right? A pirate's treasure box, chest, treasure chest filled with gold coins sitting at the bottom of the ocean. Is it lost? Yes. Is it really lost? No. It's there. You can't see it. This could have been a case study in the last JLI course. About the uh, finder's keepers. Yes. By the way, it's a great question. It's a great question. Coins that are stamped, right? That are lost. Did the owner ever give up hope? Right. It ties into the question about finders keepers. Anyway, 
So the coins, the treasure chest, is sunk. And to the owner, they might believe that it's lost, but it's not really lost. It's just you can't see it. The same thing is true with nature. What is nature? Nature is God. God is inside nature. God is powering nature. The only thing is, you can't see it. All you see is the ocean. All you see is the facade. Maybe that's the good word for it, the facade. All you see is the outside. Like you see the water and not the treasure. You see the outside. You see the facade. But you don't see the inside. You don't see the divine force, the hand in the glove. Going back to my glove example. Now we're back. Right? You see the glove moving. You don't see the hand. But is the hand in there? Of course. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. How do I know this? How do I know this? You probably know that I have a brain. Have you ever seen it? (laughs) Have you ever seen it? How do you know? Maybe I don't. How do you know? Right? So the fact that all of the fact that the sun rose, the sun will set, that's the clearest indication that there's a God. It's just that it's sunk. It's sunk inside. So you see the outside, you don't see the inside. But it's still there. With this in mind, we can jump into discourse number 25. Okay, let me pass these around. Page 348. Yes, Yaakov. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of um, philosophical proofs of God, um, which are kind of silly, but um, there are kind of tangible proofs of God that um, it's not just that there's a sun that rose and um, sank, but that it actually could not have formed itself and that this world is too complex. So can we say that there is... Is it, is it enough just to say that there's a sun that rose and set? Or is it, do we need to say that this world is so complex with checks and balances and nuclear, you know, nuclear bombs in every single cell in our bodies and everything coexists and, you know, um, all these systems? Um, do we have to uh, invoke the uh, complexity of the world to say that, oh, God exists because it's complex and it happened? Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 love, I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. And I think it, I think we can, you know, if this class wasn't, the intention is not necessarily today to prove God. It's to illustrate something that is curious, which is that although we know that God created all this, oftentimes we don't see it, even though it's right there because it's sunk. Now, what you're suggesting is great, which is this notion of, you know, where do we see God? And, you know, where could we see? And how, I think you're talking more about the meditation or the thought processes or the science or whatever that we can use to discover the treasure that's hidden inside the water. So you're, I believe, like a half a step, you know, be, you know past where we are. What, what I'm speaking of is the, the first part, which is the fact that we don't see God typically. You know, we don't see God in nature, even though it's the same, it's the same reality. Even though nature is the same as a miracle, we don't see it. Now, how do, we, how do we see it sometimes? Well, meditation. Well, the miracle can remind us. Or looking at the complexity, as what you're saying, the complex, complexity of life itself. Um, I think all of the above could expose the truth. But we're speaking today about the interesting status quo, which is there is this truth that oftentimes is not obvious and not apparent and not exposed, but it's still there, and we're encouraged to see it using whatever means we can. Now, but but- to name it God, to name it God I mean, what, what I'm trying to get past is just to say the sun could not have created itself. 
in that natural world could not have created itself because you know we're just saying god well why 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 could why does it have to be a god why does it have, can't it be well, self-created yeah, yeah no no i understand but but um the um the notion of god is not limited to the process of creation it's not limited to the construct of creation we don't prove god through creation god is what creates again i, I think we're touching on a question of how do we know god exists which is outside of the purview of today's right. session so that's right. that's a little bit outside of today's of today's discussion the core yeah. idea here is to distinguish between what we would call miracle versus nature. Now, how do we know God exists? I mean, that's ultimately an articulation of faith and trust. Um, you know, but the, the core idea here is that there is this thing called nature that God wants to operate through, which necessarily hides his reality, in which we're encouraged, or despite which we're encouraged to discover him, even though he's hiding himself. And this interplay between miracle and nature, between concealment and revelation, is at the core, is at the heart of our lives and really our mission in life, as we'll see. And by the way, it also can inform in radical ways how we show up to work on a very practical level, which is ultimately what this, what this, uh, this next section is going to deal with. All right, so this is page 348 in your books, Discourse 25. All right, I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump in. You have it here in the handouts, the booklets, or the book. 348, Discourse 25. Now we return to the verse. This is a verse from Deuteronomy. God will bless you in all... Hold on. God will bless you in all that you do. Let's just meditate on that verse for one quick second. It says, God will bless you in all that you do which makes almost the blessing contingent on the work. It doesn't say God will bless you. It doesn't say go to work. It says God will bless you in all that you do, which creates this grand partnership between human effort, doing, and divine blessing, God will bless you. So let's continue inside. Sifri free comments. We're one to presume that he would be blessed even if he sat with folded hands. Somebody say, well, let God bless me and I'll do nothing. Scripture declares in all that you do, man must do, i.e. he must prepare some instrument for his livelihood. So what we see from this verse is two points. Number one, you got to do. God will bless you in all that you do, which means that your action, your going to work, your creating a plan for an income, and, 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 and executing that plan, that is a key to this experience. At the same time, we state God will bless you in all that you do. Which means that the blessing is manifest in the action. Now understand this right off the bat. Everything that I told you up until now is explaining the foundation of this. Why will God bless you in all that you do? Because that's how God chooses to operate, with the energy inside a container. Right? Just like God created the world, spiritual light, right? Inside a plant, inside nature. So too, the, the, it, on an individual level, that's on a, on a grand, global, universal, planetary level. On an individual level, the same thing is true. God sends his spiritual blessings enclosed or to be enclosed in our actions. We have to have the glove for which to God, for, for, uh, in which 
God to put his hand. So again, that last line is critical. Man must do, i.e. must prepare some instrument for his livelihood. And again, just to be very clear here, uh, God will bless you in all that you do is not speaking of, you know, God will bless your, I don't know, other things. And uh, you know, it, this is very specifically, it's very specifically God blessing you uh, financially in all that you do. We're talking about, we're talking about a livelihood and, and job and, and, and wealth and money. Let's continue. This is one of the differences between the period of exile and its avodat habirurim, I'm going to explain that in a moment, and the future days of Mashiach. I think, Don, I think you, Dean, I think you asked about Mashiach earlier, right? He says this is the core difference, one of the core differences between nowadays and future times. By the way, it says exile is the avodat habirurim. Avodat habirurim is the Kabbalistic terminology for the, um, the time period, which is now, where we're dealing with elevating the sparks, right? The vessel shattered, a Kabbalah says there was a primordial world of chaos, where there was too much light, two little vessels, they shattered. The sparks, the shards, the, soul, the, 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 the energy, the light, which embedded itself all around the universe, and our job is to seek out and to elevate and to, and to return those sparks to its source. That is avodat habirurim. That's the avod. Avodat means the avoda, the service of. Birur means refinement. Refinement. It means using something, let's say food, for a higher purpose, and thus extracting and elevating the spark. So that's what we do today, nowadays, and versus the future days of Mashiach. What's the difference? Let's continue inside. In the future, in, in Messianic times, the supernal beneficence will flow forth from him with no effort or, prepare, or preparation of a vessel for one's sustenance. In other words, in the future time, the blessing will flow without the need for a glove. Without the need for a glove. Without the need for a, for, a, for a garment. Without the need for a vessel. However, in the days of exile, in other words, now, today, man, human being, must exert himself in preparing the instrument for his sustenance. So we don't get, because God doesn't operate miraculously by, uh, by, by um, God does not commonly act in a miraculous fashion. God needs us to create a vessel for the livelihood. It's kind of like God says to each of us, give me an alibi for getting you the guilt. Right? I want to give you, this is what I want to give you. Create, create a way in which I can launder this money. Not exactly launder, but in a way that I can like, give, me a, give me a front through which I can, I can smuggle the money in. Don't make me somehow wire it and the bank will be like, who's God, Inc.? Like, where did, that, where did this wire come from? Very suspicious wire. Like, don't make, don't make me do that. Don't make me make you f- just discover a treasure while scuba diving. Like, make it, give me a plausible scenario in which to get you the money. That's the way it works today. When Mashiach comes, we won't need to make the vessel. The blessings will just flow straight and pure. It won't have to go through that process, that check down process in light vessel, light vessel, light vessel. But nowadays it does. Let's continue. The reason why deed is so necessary, third paragraph, the reason why deed, action, is so necessary is, and this is what we've been explaining this morning, since the beneficence granted to man must issue through the garments of Asiya action, 
right? In other words, since the blessings have to come into our physical plane of existence, man, as in the phrase, you are called Adam, in the, the image of, uh, of above, must, uh, we, human beings, must also create a garment by engaging in labor so the blessing from on high can be invested in the garment of nature. Since all blessings have to be invested in garments of nature, this, the same is true with our money, with our income. If we want to, get, to gain a parnasa, a livelihood, we have to give a plausible scenario through which or by which God can get that blessing to us. We have to create a vessel for that blessing to be manifest. Thus, the verse, going back to the opening verse of this chapter, God will bless you in all that you do. Those two points are necessary. You cannot cut out one of them. If you cut out God's blessing, then you can do from today to tomorrow and nothing's going to happen. If you cut out the work, then God could wish to bless you, but there's no way for it to be manifest. It's almost like if you want, um, I don't know, if you want electricity in your home, you're going to have to run the cables from the street into your house. It's not enough that it's outside your street. It says that it's outside your home, right? There are power lines outside my home. We're good, right? Not yet. Not yet. The fact that there are power lines outside your home is a wonderful start. But you have to run a line from the lines, from the power lines, into your individual house. The fact that God wants to bless you, the fact that God, you know, is sending the energy is great. But you got to create that channel. you got to create that pipe. you got to create that connection. And that is done through creating a material channel through which the blessing can come. So it's laying the copper. Copper? I don't know if it's copper. Whatever. It's, laying, it's the cable between your home and the, um, and the what's it called again? Between your home and, um, and the actual uh, the, the transformer. I'm saying the, no, 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 not in the home itself, but between the power lines. In your home, it's laying that it's, it's laying that connection between the two that is so very important. Yeah. Well, what is here on this world? We do make the connection, but somehow the blessings get blocked. It's still not flown. Okay. So he's going to address that. I don't know if there's a magic answer to this, but he will at least talk about it. He will at least talk about it. But, but the point is here that we need both components. You need, the, you need, again, using the home analogy, the electricity analogy, I think it's actually a good one. So you need the electricity to flow. If there's no electricity in the power lines outside, if, um, you know, when the power goes out, the transformer blows or something, the power goes out, the power is not flowing. So then you could have all the connections to your home and it's still not your, your home is still, you're still no lights on. Um, so you need that. So you need, you need the electricity outside. At the same time, you also need the line from outside to inside. If you just have it outside and not, and it's not flowing inside, it also, it also doesn't do anything. So you really need the magic combination is really to have both. So hence the verse, God will bless you in all that you do. In order to actually receive the blessing, you need two. You need both elements. You need the blessing from God and you need to do. You need to have the divine, the spiritual source, the spiritual flow flowing. And then you have to have the glove within which that operates. Why? Because God does not choose in, in normal, normal occasions to do miracles. God does not want to have to do a miracle. God wants to operate through nature. And what is nature? Nature is giving God the alibi, giving God a way to sneak in without it looking too obvious. Now, this is the next section of this chapter called Conceal God, Reveal God. This is very important. It is written in Isaiah, Indeed, Achen Ata Kel Mistater. Indeed, you are God who conceals himself. That's, that's a phrase from Isaiah. What does that mean? In godliness, there is the revealed God 
and the concealed God. Now, don't worry. It's not like we're talking about two different gods. But it means God in a modality of openness and concealment. These are two opposing stages. Nature and transcending nature. Now you probably see why I started today's class by talking about nature and miracles. Because that's exactly what we're up to right now. There, these are two opposing stages. There's nature and that which transcends nature. In truth, he says, it is understood to human intellect too that in other words, even uh, the human mind, you don't need a spiritual uh, uh, belief in this. The human mind can understand that the godliness invested in the garments of nature is the same as the godliness transcending nature. Listen to that line. It's understood and obvious to the human mind that the same divine energy that flows through the tree is the same one that flows through the sea that's splitting. The same energy that flows through the garments of nature is the same as the godliness that transcends nature. The difference between godliness within nature and that beyond nature is only in terms of the creatures. It's only in our perception. There's no difference. Both are God. It's only how we perceive it. For him, for God, there is no difference whether he is clothed in nature or manifest without the garments of nature. In other words, to God, there's no difference between whether he's showing up in a sunrise and sunset or in a sea splitting. It's the same God, the same reality. For man, a man is not gender specific, for man, for the human being, there is a difference. To perceive God within nature requires meditation, while perception of the transcendent God is immediate. In other words, to see God in the tree, in the sunrise and the sunset, requires a little meditation, as I think Yaakov was talking about. But to see God in the miracle requires no meditation. It's obvious, it's immediate. And he continues to explain what I told you before. This explains the Hebrew word teva, nature. Related to the word tava, sank. Same Hebrew letters. Tet, vet, ayin. Teva, nature, tava, sink. As in, tubu biyamsov, they sank in the Red Sea. Reed Sea. Now I was doing the whole thing about re red, read versus not red, and, and there you go. I don't know who translated this stuff. The object, the object sunk in the sea, so he explains why teva is related to the word sank. Why? The object sunk in the sea is covered by the waters. Nothing is obvious beneath the surface other than the water. When you look, at, look out at the ocean and you don't see a treasure underneath, you see water. The only, oh sorry, but in truth, the fact that the object is covered does not eliminate its existence. In other words, the, the treasure at the bottom of the sea, the fact that you can't see it, does that mean it doesn't exist? Of course not. It still exists. It, the fact that the water covers it doesn't undo its existence. It just makes it harder to see. The only effect is that it's not visible. Only the covering, which is the surface of the sea, can be seen by onlookers. But the concealed object retains its existence in nature precisely as before being covered. In other words, there's no difference to the treasure, whether it's open or under the water. Are you with me? The coin... To the coin, it doesn't matter whether it's sitting on a table, in a pocket, or under the ocean, at the bottom of the ocean. To the coin, it doesn't make a difference. To the coin itself. The coin is not, doesn't change either way. The difference is vis-a-vis -vis you. You see it on the table. You don't see it under the water. Somebody has a ring, and they're on the beach. Use a sand example, same thing. They have a ring, and they're on the beach. And the ring slips off and falls into the sand. And they're searching, they're digging, they're searching, they're searching. Can't find it. They know they had it. They were showing someone a ring. And it dropped. Now it's gone. It's gone? Is it gone? 
Someone says, now it's gone. I said that phrase, now it's gone. Is it really gone? It's not really gone. It's there. Somewhere. It's not, it hasn't, it hasn't vanished. It's vanished from sight. You can't see it anymore. Right? It's now covered by sand. It's sunk in the sand, in the beach. But it's not actually gone. So the divine power, that power is teva, power is nature, is not gone. It's not not there. It's not like nature supplants God. It's God is inside nature. God is powering nature. She can't see it. It's God is there in totality. You just can't see it because it's covered by the garments of nature. By the way, he's going to take it a step further and say, by the way, you know whose garments of nature that is? It's also God. God is the ring and the sand. You with me on this? This work gets even more trippy. It's like when it comes to the treasure, comes to the coin and the water, the coin is the coin, the water is water. It's just one doesn't eradicate the other. One doesn't negate the other. When it comes to God, God is the coin and the water and the God is all of the above. Anyway, let's, we'll do this inside. Um, regarding godliness too. Second to last paragraph on page 350. Regarding godliness too. Concealed in the garments of nature, these garments do not, sorry, do no more than cover the godliness. In other words, nature does not obliterate God. Nature doesn't reject God. Nature doesn't sideline God. Nature just covers the godliness that's really powering everything. And then he takes it a step further, like I just mentioned. However, in truth, the analogy of the water concealing the object is not a genuine analogy for nature's concealing godliness. Because the water and the object it conceals are independent of each other. The water did not create the object that covers, nor did the object create the water that covers it. However, the godliness clothed in nature created those very garments of nature, and the godliness clothed within them vivifies and sustains them. So when God is concealed in nature, the truth is, it's all God. It's a God sandwich. It's God inside with a layer of God and another layer of God sandwiched with God. Are you with me on that? It's not like you have a ring in the sand or a coin in the water. It's God covered by God, surrounded by God. It's still God. It's all God. That's what nature is. In other words, what we call nature, what we call perhaps mother nature, we look and we see sunrise, sunset, trees, grass, etc. We say, oh wow, nature, I don't see God, but I see nature. What do you think nature is? It's not just God hidden in nature. God, what's nature itself? Nature is also God. So it's God hidden in, in, in a layer of God also that just doesn't look like it. Anyway, the point is, it follows, he says, last, last line of that second to last paragraph, it follows then that the godliness clothed in nature is the very godliness transcending nature. The same God in nature is the same God in the miracle. The same God in the sun rising this morning is the same God in the splitting of the sea. It's just one you were able to see and one you were not able to see immediately. Why? That's a you thing. I don't mean you, I mean me also, right? That's an us thing. It's not a God thing. That's an us thing. It's not a God thing. The Alter Rebbe explains, last, last paragraph. Let's see how much, yeah, we have another two paragraphs. The Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya chapter 19, that the word teva nature is used as a description for the supra-intellectual, supra super-rational, which is understood with, with natural intellect. People observing, and here you use the example of the sun, people observing the rising and setting of the sun 
with such regularity and other natural phenomena where godliness conceals itself in various garments are not impressed. Right, when you see the sun rising and setting, I know people are impressed with sunrises and sunsets. Wow, it's beautiful. But not necessarily does the fact that the sun rose this morning make us immediately feel like God is in my life. It's like, we're, somebody says, like, I wish God would just show up. Like, I wish God would just, you know, manifest himself to me. You're here? <laughs> you wish God would, would announce himself. One second. It's light outside. The trees are growing. The wind is blowing. God didn't announce himself. What are you talking about? What's, who's God? Isn't, isn't this God? Right? They must be. The person who is not impressed by nature, they must be awakened to contemplate deeply before they grasp the truth that nature itself is supernatural. In other words, they, they need a little bit of a, no, no one should do this to anyone else, but the person themselves needs to be awakened, needs to wake up a little bit in or, before they grasp the truth that nature itself is supernatural. Comprehending this fact that nature is actually far higher than the na than natural requires deep, profound thought. The first glance can mislead, and only meditation leads one to the truth that nature itself is a manifestation of God transcending nature. All this refers to godliness invested in the ways and garments of nature, i.e. God who conceals himself. But to reveal God, the God of miracles and the supernatural, is obvious to all and requires no particular meditation. So this is today's, uh, today's chapter. And what it says at its core, hopefully, is everything that I told you before we read inside, which is that there are two modalities that God shows up in which or through which God shows up. One modality is nature. The other modality is the supernatural. When God shows up in the supernatural modality, it's obvious. You can't deny that that's God. It's clear. It's obvious. It's like God wearing a nice name tag that says, Hi, my name is God. It's like obvious. It's clear. It's a miracle. The sea is splitting. It's standing like a wall. It shouldn't happen. The only explanation is it's God. That's the supernatural. That doesn't need much explanation. That we get. And I think everyone in our lives had an experience, has had an experience or two in which we were taking, our breath was taken away, we were overwhelmed, it was either something amazing or something maybe tragic, whatever, something that felt larger than life itself, larger than what could be explained, and we felt like, wow, this is an encounter with God, with something higher, something greater than the norm. That's one category. And then there's the norm. The regular, every, everyday, usual way that things work. And typically we don't walk around saying, wow, that's God. Wow, that's godly. Wow, that's divine. Look at Hashem. Look at God manifest. We don't typically say that. Most of us, most of us don't typically say that on the everyday, on an everyday basis. Why? It's the great, it's the great charade. It's the great facade. It's because God conceals himself inside nature. Who's nature? What's nature? It's also God. God conceals himself and it's due to the frequency. It lulls us into a sense of normalcy or normality, whatever the word is. It lulls us into a false sense of this is normal, this is obvious, so it's just to be taken for granted that this is the way things are and should be. And so we forget that it's actually being created by God. To the point that Yaakov mentioned before, it's that we, we should look in the crazy ways that nature works to realize that that's God. But maybe we shouldn't look at the crazy ways that nature works. Maybe we should look at the, at the, at the mundane ways that nature works because that's, that's where God is also. But it's harder to find God there. It's easier to find God it, when, you, when you find the things that stand out. It's harder to find God in the areas that don't stand out. But God is there too. Does that make sense? 
God is in those places that don't announce themselves either, that don't make a lot of noise. The subtle, normal things that happen. Reminds me, there's a person that I know who lives in Pittsburgh, actually, whose daughter was learning in school, in the school in Pittsburgh, she was learning about the concept of divine providence, hashgacha pratis, divine providence, DP as we call it. And divine providence is where, you know, something happens in your life and it's like amazing how this happened and then that happened and it's like all orchestrated by God to create like this amazing, that's simply how we understand, create amazing result. And the daughter was given a, an assignment to come back the next day with a story of divine providence. Again, if you ask somebody for a story of divine providence, they'll typically say, you know, I was driving on the road and, you know, I had to pull over and then somebody came and it turns out that they were this and this and that, and this amazing story. So this girl asked her father, do we, do you have a story? Do we have a story of divine providence? Something that, he says, yeah. She says, what's the story? He's like, I was driving down, down the street earlier today and I came to a red light and I stopped my car. And just then, to my left, came a red car and also came to the light and stopped right next to me. And she says to him, where's the divine providence? It's like, that's the divine providence. That my car and that car were next to each other. But where's the story? Who says there needs to be a story? If everything is orchestrated by God, that too is divine providence. Are you with me on this? Sometimes we have to see a miracle to find God. What's divine providence? It's a miracle story. But that's not really what divine providence means. Divine providence means that everything that happens is by divine orchestration. Are you with me on that? There's a difference. Even in the context of trying to explain how God is everywhere, we typically lean on the crazy stories, the stories that stand out. And the point of today's class is, and I, I hope what I'm saying is, is, is resonating on at least some level. The point of today's class is don't find God only in the places that stick out. Find God in the absolutely regular mundane stuff. I was driving, somebody else was driving, we both stopped at the red light. But what does it mean? I don't know what it means. But this too is God. This too is divine. This too was by divine orchestration. It doesn't negate free will. Free will means what you do next. Everything else is like the setting. I'm going to stop my car at the red light. Yeah, that's your free will. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the free will works together with, right, free will works together with, with our actions. Because God is not limited by time. You're asking a good question. How does free will work with Hashgach HaPratis, with divine providence? That's a, that's a great question, and we have to, that's, that require, we've had classes on that, but that's a much larger topic. But essentially, the two have to work together. In other words, because God is not limited in a, in a um, linear time scale, so God has seen everything. So everything, that, all the choices that we've made or will make are all part of the plan, even though it's playing out for us in real time. But even as we make a choice, it still fits in within, within that plan. That, that contradicts against free will, saying that God's already made all plans. One way to understand it is that God has already seen the choices we've made. It's, it's, a far, it's a far reach. If you watch a replay of the Super Bowl, yeah. and you know that Tom Brady just threw it, and, and then you're watching with a, If you watch the Super Bowl on Sunday, and then you're watching with a buddy who was out of, was out of the country on Monday, 
and be, they want the full experience. You're throwing a Super Bowl party a day later, and you know that Tom Brady throws a touchdown pass right there. Does your knowledge of him throwing the pass affect his choice the day before? No. So the knowledge doesn't affect choice. Anyway, I, I don't want to. I don't. I want to wrap up before we get before we get into that deep dive. So here's here's the idea. The idea is that we typically look for God. We typically talk about God in the bombastic moments, in the moments, the, the grand moments. It's like, look, a miracle. Look, divine providence. Look, look at how amazingly all these pieces fit together. No one other than God could have orchestrated that. Even the story of Purim. It's like. Who could have pulled together all those pieces for a happy resolution and a peaceful resolution? It's only God. Let's throw a party. But what about a regular day? You get up, you wake up, you get dressed, and you go to work, and nothing out of the ordinary happens. Where's God? In that experience. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's The only question is, will we choose to see it? God is there. God is there as much as he is in the crazy story of this and that happening and the accident or whatever. And God is, and, and God is as there in the normal every day. I woke up, I went to work. The, non, the, the normal day as much as he is in the sea splitting. The only difference is perception. Do you see it or not? It's easy to find God in the crazy story. It's harder to find God when everything is normal. But God is there too. That's today's point. That's the point of today's class. And what's the upshot for us vis-a-vis work? The message is, we go to work every day to make a living. And it's easy to fall into the, the trap of perception, of thinking that it's the work that produces the money. It's we go to work, and we're smart about it, and we invest right, and we make the deal, and we're, we put in a lot of effort, blah, 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 blah. And therefore, it ends, it equals the, mo- the money, the blessing. And what Kabbalah... Um, emphasizes again and again and again is that there is the magical ingredient. Even in the work that we do, even in the, the natural efforts that we put in, there's the divine blessing there as well. And let's not forget about the divine blessing, which will take us back. This book is called Overcoming Folly. It's all about the silly things that we do and correcting that. And the one that we're going to address, that we're starting to address right now is the folly of, of a person saying, I can't focus on my spiritual uh, side because I have to make money or I have to go to work. I have to invest all of this in my in the financial part of it. So I can't pray or meditate or do do good things or study. Right? I can't I can't do all these things because I have to work on the finances. And this is going to tell us, remind us that that we have to create the space for the spiritual, even as we tend to the physical. God will bless you in all that you do. So you need the you you need the doing. You need the action, but you also need the blessing. All right. Uh, my blessing for us all this week is that we should have a week of clarity. A week, even take one moment of one of these days that are upcoming over the next seven days. Take one moment of one day and just try to connect. However you, however you do that best, try to connect with the divine, with the godly energy of that moment, of that space. Maybe you're speaking to a person. Just connect with the spirituality, with the soul that they have. Connect with your own spirit. Connect with a tree. Connect with not the tree for the tree itself, but connect with the divine energy within that experience. Don't only find the divine in something big and loud. Find God in the quiet, in the simple, in the everyday, in the ordinary. Because the ordinary, as we've seen today, is in fact extraordinary. 
Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see you all. I want to specifically uh, mention our online crew, Dr. Maxi, good to see you, and thank you again, Dr. David, Linda, Mariana, special shout out to Mariana for joining us from Chile, from across the world. Yes, from Chile, but now I'm in New York. You're in New York. Oh, wow, it's amazing. It's yes. beautiful. Yes, nice. Yes, with Alex. Thank amazing, you very much. Amazing. Well, welcome. Welcome to, uh, to, <laughs> to the United States. States. Yes. Welcome to the States. We're Beautiful. We're closer. Closer and You closer are closer. To you. Listen, yes. we'll, have to, we'll have to get you here to Atlanta. We'll see if we can pull some strings to get you here. Yes. Great that yes. you're here. I hope the mishpacha, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope Ian is good and everybody is, uh, is blessed and the daughter, your daughter-in-law oh, and everything. Yaakov, you. Sure. Yaakov, welcome. Oh, good to see you. And Adam, it's good to see you. And joy as well. It is great to see everybody. Um, all right, so that's it for today. We'll see you next week. So Kabbalah Coffee is on next week. Please God, same time. Um, and next week we continue our conversation about miracles in the supernatural. And um, our focus is going to be on why exactly the garments are so important and the message that nature holds for us. So stay tuned for more fun and excitement next week at KNC. Also next week, next Sunday, June 26th, we're having our barbecue, our big um, in-town Jewish Academy barbecue uh, with the Solish family, 5 p.m. right here, right by the Beltline, 5 p.m. Join us between 5 and 7. It's going to be a party. And uh, I'll be there. My wife, kids will be there. It'll be a great time to celebrate and just to hang out together. All right, we'll see you guys. Have a great week. Shavua Tov. Take care. Lots of blessings. Lots of love. See you guys. Yes.